Welcome to Lumpin' Week in Review, the show that covers the past week of news, happenings, and programs presented on WLPN. This week, Lumpin' Radio chatted with a data expert about the upcoming elections in our state, spoke about the legal issues confronting the next attorney general, and learned about an arts program for the developmentally disabled. All this plus the Trump Diaries and much more, only on the Lumpin' Week in Review for February 2nd, 2018. Hitting Left spoke to Aaron Goldstein, a candidate for Illinois Attorney General, about pending cases that will affect Illinois. The group discussed the case of a transgender student at a suburban school, the role of the Attorney General in Illinois, and what a progressive candidate's priorities should be. Hitting Left with the Klonsky Brothers airs every Friday at 11 a.m. Aaron might want to talk about, because this, this has a legal, uh, legal implications, but uh, there was this weird court decision yesterday. Uh, out in Palatine, a, su- a suburb of Chicago, where there's a transgender student who wanted, uh, who was asking for, uh, she was asking for access to the bathrooms and the, and the locker rooms. That, uh, and up until now, she's been forced to uh, change in a secluded location. Uh, um, and the judge, a phone booth, I think, and, like the, and the judge denied a Palatine uh, the student's request for an injunction that would grant her unrestricted access to the girls' locker room on the basis of the state's Human Rights Act, which I didn't know we had a Human Rights Act, but apparently this Human Rights Act doesn't protect human rights. The judge decided that full access and, uh, and equality don't mean, <laughs> don't mean the same thing. And so... Um, um, well, who, whose human, human rights were being violated by this transgender student? Well, no, they, they've denied her, as I understand the, the, the case, uh, she was denied uh, access to the, lock, to the girl's locker room on the basis that she was a, that she was a transgender student. And the judge ruled that, the, that, that human rights or equal access applies every— They ruled in favor of school district, saying that equal, a, equal access doesn't cover schools. But it doesn't cover schools. Oh, it doesn't cover that the school was not that no that the school was not required to provide equal access on the basis of state law because it was a school, a I public school, a public school. Yeah, that makes no sense. Yeah. I mean, I, I'm assuming, and I don't know. And much this about is the a, case. I'm a, I don't even pretend to be a lawyer, but that's how I understood what the. But what that's the how was. a lot of uh, rulings have been uh, recently regarding uh, uh, First Amendment rights and uh, Fourth uh, Fourth Amendment rights. In other words. In the school. Laws that protect uh, people against search and seizure. Uh, free speech. Or free speech uh, don't apply to uh, students. Schools. Yeah. yeah, well, I mean, there's been an evolution. You had the famous Tinker case, uh, the, the student in Iowa during the Vietnam War that, that right. uh, wore that black uh, armband around their, I think it was like they, they just wrapped a black armband around the, the arm. Um, and then that, that sort of started the... First Amendment jurisprudence within schools, and basically it's this mishmash of there's some protections, but there's not a lot, and you know there's really a correlation between the corporatization of schools and then the losing of even more rights of of uh, First Amendment rights, Fourth Amendment rights. Now the transgender situation that's that's just a bad application of the law. It's a simple equal protection argument that hopefully they appeal and. I'm not that optimistic. Uh, You're not optimistic. Well, if it goes through the federal court system, um, Mm -hmm. do do you trust uh, many Trump appointees and eventually to get to a Supreme Court with uh, those 
cast a crew that uh, no yeah so well, we've had we've had <laughs> some we've had some favorable rulings in the federal courts recently uh, of course they weren't Trump appointees but correct um, but to me it's not just a legal question it's an educational question it's a question of curriculum I mean what are we teaching what are we teaching our students about democracy you know if, if we're trying if the purpose of schooling which I think it is the purpose to prepare a, a generation of students to be good citizens to be uh, citizens in a democratic society, then schools should be democratic uh, places, and uh, of course they're not. And so, what are we teaching? Uh, how do we, how do you expect people to be democratic citizens when we're we're treating them uh, as second class citizens? Well, and that I mean that's the problem with the school system as it's evolved of of recent. It's a business. It's seen as a business. We're we're creating workers. We're we're creating people who don't have uh, intellectual thought, independent thought, and understand democracy and understand the the process. Uh, as you corporatize the schools more and more, as you take away their rights, uh, what are these kids now being produced? I I agree wholeheartedly. That's what you're teaching in school. It, yes, you learn about science and math and all that, and that's great. But you're teaching an actual soon-to-be productive citizen, right, a, a, an evolved citizen in our democracy, um, and we're not doing it. Yeah, and of course, uh, some students are being prepared for the world of work. Some students are being prepared for, uh, you know, to run the, run the country and to be creative uh, people, and then there's some students that are being caught up in the school-to-prison pipeline and being taught how to follow orders and keep their mouth shut and do what they're told. So... Unfortunately, that's where we're at right now. And uh, the point I take away from all this is that we've got to not only defend public education, we've got to transform it all as well. Yes, but wouldn't you love to? Uh, to me, I, I, I look at that situation and I say to myself, man, I would love to be a teacher in Palatine, <laughs> really anywhere, but certainly at Palatine right now as an opportunity. That you talk about a teachable moment, teaching exactly the things that Aaron was talking about and what you were just saying. Uh, this is. These are the questions that ought to be taken into the – it's not the testable stuff. It's not the things that are going to show up on, uh, yeah. on the things that get reported out on uh, school report cards. But being a teacher in a classroom right now and talking about the rights of chan- – uh, You mean to take uh, a break from test prep to talk yeah. about real world we'll talk issues? Talk about real world issues and talk about transgendered students and, 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 the, and the rights that each of us uh, – uh, deserve and ought to get, even even if you're a student in a in a public school. If I could tell a little story, my uh, youngest daughter goes to Agassiz, which is a Chicago public school up north. And speaking of eugenics, Agassiz was a eugenicist. That's right. Um, and Listen, can I just say it's amazing how many schools yeah. are named after him. It's just <laughs> and and for for whatever reason this became an issue and and uh, there was a group of parents that that wanted the name change and they requested it be changed and i went to the debates and and one of the things i said i i said uh agassiz would not want me and would not allow me into this school definitely wouldn't allow my wife into the school and my children would be these half breeds of something that um he would despise so how can we keep this name. And the defense was, well, it's going to cost too much money. <laughs> and, and they, just, they have to change the letterhead. <laughs> and, and, and they said, and, and we, we, we have to pay for this in the school. We need to get it painted and we need all this stuff. I said, what a teachable moment. You could have an eighth grade class 
that that learn that that learns about Agassiz and and finds in history some great person that we can name the school after that actually maybe a business class of how we, can we turn this into a profit how can we you know make you know be entrepreneurs and and figure out a way to to have good fundraisers that actually t- can turn this around it's just automatically oh we just it's not fair to the kids i was like but the but the people of color the students of color have to go to this school knowing that it's named after a, a person that despised these that didn't even think they were humans uh, like the teachable moments are so much there and we and we give up on them all the time it's very sad no that's a great a great point aaron uh, I, i've got another legal a consult, consultation thing with you. <laughs> uh, this is pro bono time. Right? <laughs> I was always just good. You could check my hours. I want you to tell me what you think about uh, about uh, Trump getting his lawyer to pay off uh, this stripper uh, Stormy Daniels <laughs> uh, to to get her to shut up about a you know a, a sexual relationship that that they had. Why isn't this Why isn't this uh, disguised payoff a crime that does? An attorney, a state's attorney general, could use to go after uh, Trump without having to uh, do it fed, uh, with you know with the Justice Department. Well, I mean, first we have to figure out the venue where where this actual uh, payoff took place, so, so that we might have some issues as far as the Illinois attorney general. But here's the thing: it I took mean, place someplace, uh, Delaware. <laughs> it, it took place in Delaware. So we, we so we, well, we what to... happened was what happened was uh, Trump's lawyer. Set up a uh, a shell corporation in Delaware, which everybody does that, I guess. Yeah, uh, and uh, use that corporation to make the hundred and thirty thousand dollar payoff to uh, Miss Daniels, if that is indeed her real name. I don't think it is. Uh, to Stormy, <laughs> that and, one probably isn't a real name. <laughs> no, I think Stormy's the real name. It's Daniels that I'm suspicious of. <laughs> anyway, uh, to make so to hide the, to hide the. You know the payoff and the use of probably campaign funds, so it seems like like uh, this sounds a lot like uh, like what uh, how they got uh, former uh, Speaker Hastert. of the House Dennis Hastert yeah. on. Or, you know, I'm no I'm no lawyer, but you are. <laughs> <laughs> well, and also, uh, why am I? Uh, who ran for president? Um, he was a senator in North Carolina. Why, Edwards? Yeah, Edwards. That's that, how, that yeah, was similar. With similar the, thing. Now, if there were campaign contributions used for that, that's that's a whole different ball game, and that's a potential crime. Uh, and honestly, though, if it was just sort of out of his own pocket, and they have an agreement, a non-disclosure agreement, I mean that that's potentially. Well, isn't that what Denny legal. Hastert did? Well, he was. He took money out of his own account, hit it, hit its purpose, and he they, yeah. what he did was a very technical violation. It's amazing all the, the the harm he caused. And it was sort of like Capone, these very technical violations. Yeah, because exactly. what he was doing, he was taking out just under $10,000 in cash from his bank account, which automatically gets a reg... Uh, the over 10000 withdrawal gets a... sends a message to the SEC, or I, I don't know who it is. But so so he tried to skirt that by taking out $9,999 in like several chunks. So it was that very technical violation, that banking violation. That, that's how that they got he, Capone, wasn't it? That, that's what that's, saying, yeah. that's the thing. So, so that was really my question. It really wasn't a question. I'm just, <laughs> I'm just thinking that uh, possibly Trump, Trump might go down on something like that, money laundering or, or hidden uh, misuse of campaign funds. 
rather than uh, you know the Russia <laughs> probe or whatever you know. That's... Yeah, like t- treason or or giving safe harbor to the clan. He'll get away with that, but it's the Stormy Daniels <laughs> Stormy payoff Daniel. that maybe we could get. Okay, I'm going to stop. Sports spoke to the Arts of Life Collective about their work with developmentally disabled adults. Arts of Life now runs two studios with dozens of artists and also fields two rock bands. Bad at Sports airs every Wednesday at 11 a.m. Uh, today joining us in the studio, we have Vincent Uribe and Lauren Leving, uh, and we're here to talk about Art of Life. Welcome to uh, Bad at Sports Center. Hi. Hi. Hello. Hi. So let's just kind of jump right in. You've got a show up, uh, Community of Color. We can kind of talk about that. And from there, we can understand where this is. So um, what's the show? So it's actually the arts of life. Oh. I'll, <laughs> I'll let Lauren talk about the show a little bit because she's our guest curator at Circle Contemporary, which is our Chicago studio gallery off of Damon and Carol. So. We invited Lauren to curate the show, and I'll let her tell you a little bit about the artists and uh, what's up right now. But w- wait, before that, what is? Can you give us a little background? What, what? is Arts of Life? Arts of Life. The is, Arts of Life. Arts of I'm Life so is sorry. a nonprofit art studio and gallery space. We have a location in Chicago, um, in Westtown, and a location in Glenview. So we support adult artists with developmental and intellectual disabilities. We've just celebrated our 18th year anniversary, uh, and oh, we launched. Legal. Yeah, we we <laughs> launched this gallery last January. Um, so this is sort of like the year anniversary since this gallery is launched. And next Friday, we're launching our North Shore Gallery. Um, Open Gallery is the name. And so we're excited to have these two gallery programs that we're going to be kind of pushing forward with. And um, our guest curator, Lauren Leving, curated our fifth show here at the gallery. So yeah, Lauren, tell us about the show. Yeah, so um, I guess the purpose of Circle Contemporary is kind of to bring in artists living and working in Chicago and kind of getting them to know the arts of life artists. So this exhibition, it's about community, um, artwork that represents community and kind of community building as an art practice. So there are three three artists, Nicole Hausman, uh, Kelly Stone, and Christiane Massal, and they're from the arts of life. Um, and then there are four Chicago based artists Sadie Woods, Roni Packer, Sarah Nishura, and the Chicago at Collective. And they all they all make work talking about community. Chicago at Collective um, makes work together as a collective, but also does different workshops within the community. So they have like a series of sanctuary posters and their screen prints. Um, and it's an interactive project that the visitors to Circle Contemporary can take, but they can also fill out their own. Um, And it's just kind of talking about equity and equality within the world right now and within the arts community. 
Don't mind Brian dying in the background. Uh, I did that, fine. I, I did that off a of mic, so the, the people don't know. They, exactly I how heard it in my headphones. Surprise, car. Uh, so then, how does that manifest itself? Tell me about some of the work that actually uh, is in the show. Yeah. Um, hmm. Let's see. So Nicole is one of the Arts of Life artists from the Glenview Studio, and she makes these beautiful paintings on glass. Um, one of them was inspired by a piece. Um, by Samantha Kirk at the National Museum of Mexican American Art. Or, um, and it shows a neighborhood and there's, it like juxtaposes two panes of glass. There's um, a boy rep, um, from the neighborhood and then in the background is maybe the neighborhood that she lives in. I guess it's kind of open for interpretation, but she also does this restaurant scene um, in another painting and just really showing how community comes together um, and then Roni Packer is, she recently got her MFA from University of Illinois at Chicago, and she is Israeli, and the, the paintings that we show, that I'm showing in this exhibition are kind of abstractions of food. She really started missing home and had her sister, Ugh. yeah, they're, be- they're beautiful. They're um, plates? Do they look like there's plates? There's one, like, round, wooden, abstracted plate, and then two smaller paintings on on panel um, kind of plate size they're platey yeah but she just started having her sister kind of text her these pictures of the food that she makes she's vegan and she's always like food in israel is so much better for vegans and just like showing how that true. it's kind of true <laughs> right? yeah. Yeah. um but bringing people together in community over food um which, I mean, it's the same with Nicole's restaurant painting, right? Like, that is a way, it's a communal, like, eating is it can be a communal activity. I mean, and yes, of course, it can be solitary. But <laughs> just, like, bringing humans together over a good meal and there's discussion and... Breaking bread. Breaking bread. Is it weird to mention that I'm going to break bread tonight? I, I no. certainly hope you do. Well, I'm, uh, I'm cooking for soup and bread. Oh, at the nice. hideout, it just you reminded me. Yeah. So, yeah. you know, <laughs> Super and Brad, another community-based event, bringing people together. I made a really good lentil soup, if anyone likes that kind of thing. And the hideout is, like, one of my absolute favorite places. There's beer there. Like a good lentil? But I just love the vibe. I just love the hideout. I, mm-hmm. Who doesn't love the hideout? And it's for a good cause. Just a little extra, just a little extra little slip. Building. Yeah. yeah, but so... I wanted to ask, are you pairing these artists, like, together, like, with Nicole and Roni, like, kind of bringing that Chicago artists together kind of intentionally with the arts of life? Like, do they have kind of, like, an analog? I don't know if that's a question more. Of a... I, I wasn't really thinking it thinking of it as that. Like, we kind of, so there's a curatorial committee with arts of life, um, three of the arts of life artists, and they're they're magical and they like totally help put this show together. Um, but we started discussing different ideas um, and community came up. And then through that, the Arts of Life, at, like the curatorial committee is kind of more familiar with the Arts of Life artists. So they helped pick um, the Arts of Life artists. And through that and through like seeing their work, because they're all really vibrant, colorful works, I just kind of drew from the artists that I knew that were living in Chicago. Um, so they're not paired. So it's more like a formal kind of yeah. resonance. Yeah. 
Ish. Ish. I love the 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 image for the postcard that you brought us. It's so bright. We'll Instagram that so people can see it. I will yes. Instagram that yes. when yeah, I so learn uh, how to use Instagram. <laughs> <laughs> that's a piece by Christiane Massal. She's an artist at our Chicago studio. Um, so It looks like a pool, which is making me... She does these really fun. I mean, <laughs> she refers to these generally as mandalas. Oh, yeah. Um, and that's kind of where a lot of her inspiration comes from. And... Um, she's kind of a very spiritual and like peace and loving individual. And so a lot of her, her pieces kind of send out these really positive vibes. I'm feeling the positive vibe. Like the snow makes me really sad. (laughs) (laughs) This winter has been grinding already. Pardon? The winter has been grinding a bit already. Oh yeah. I am. Well, I've, as you guys know, since we haven't been here that we've been in and out of Chicago, but just the past, the like six inch downfall, it's making me feel like I need a little mandala in my life. Yeah. Come by. Yeah, I think that's yeah, actually a great, great way to perhaps uh, enliven a, a, a bleak future or a bleak current. Uh, a bleak future. <laughs> a bleak All present. The work is a bleak really present. Bright. Yeah. Like, yeah. It's a very colorful show. The posters are oh. all sort of rainbow colors too. Community so, in color. Yeah. yeah. So how? Community in Color, that is the name of the show. I was like, wow, Brian, you're so clever. (laughs) (laughs) So Community in Color can be seen, is this true, Monday through Friday from 9 a.m. to 4 p.m. Yeah. And on Saturdays from 12 a.m. Or sorry, from noon <laughs> to, yeah. to noon to, to four. four. Yeah. Where's the gallery located? So it's on Car- off Carol and Damon. So 2010 uh, West Carroll Avenue is our Chicago studio, which is where Circle Contemporary Gallery is. Um, and so our regular hours are during the week, nine to four. But you could also stop by Saturday hours. Are there are there, there digital digital links that people could find if they yeah? Uh, don't so want to our traverse the Facebook snow? has um, <laughs> probably the most up to date information. So either Arts of Life um, on Facebook or Circle Contemporary on Facebook or artsoflife.org is also where all of that information is. But there's a lot of information there. <laughs> Fresh towel? Oh, uh, yes. Thank you. Are you having a good night? I'm just on a date with a guy who makes me so nervous. Don't be. You look great. You want a cigarette? Calm me down a little? I don't smoke. Well, how about something stronger? What? Yeah, most of this mouthwash is like 60 proof. Um, I think I'm probably good. Spritz of perfume? You don't want him smelling this flop sweat you got going on. No, thank you. What what the? Oh, wow. That's a nice scent. Thank you. It was not cheap. Mm Mm-hmm. Well, see ya. Oh, it was my mother's favorite. I bought it to see if she would respond to anything from the coma. Oh, my God. Did it work? You know, we're, uh, we're taking it one day at a time. You poor dear. Here. Thank you so much, miss. Ah, jeez. You know, I, I didn't know your mom was dead or something. <laughs> well, if you see her, don't tell her I said that. She'd ah. kill me. What's going on, Kyle? 
When I said I wanted to see what you do for a living, I was hoping that maybe I'd be able to do a ride-along, a shadow you or something. Well, you obviously can't come in here. You're a guy. Well, how about I take the men's room and diversify this Diversi- stuff? Diversify? Who taught you that? Have you been reading Men's Health again? Ah, come on. Why don't you just set up shop outside between the bathrooms? You could get both dudes and dudettes. There is a level of personal service required for these fat donations. Right, but I got a bow tie. I gotta get something to eat, Kyle. Why don't you float the mop as we agree? I want to attend to the patrons of the bathroom. The mop and the out-of-service signs are in the utility closet over there. Five minutes to mop, five minutes to dry. Done. Welcome to the ladies' room. Here. Forget this. Time to diversify. Oh my gosh! Hello. Um, wrong bathroom. So sorry. Nope. By all means, this is the right bathroom. Uh, what are you doing in here? That's okay. I'm the bathroom attendant. So when you're done washing your hands, you come over to me. I give you a piece of gum. I got a spray of cologne for you. I got some finger sandwiches. I mean, I even got some hummus. Look at the spread. Okay. Can you leave? Now you see, this is a gender diversified bathroom. Uh. Yeah. So okay. basically, it, okay. Cool. Uh, hey, all right. I got my first customer. Get this ready here. Got the carrots. Hello there, El Capitan. Uh, yeah, no, I just, I just gotta use the sink. Having a rough night? <sighs> you, you could say that. Oh, you're looking sharp there, Cap. Yeah, there's this girl I'm on, I'm on a date with, and I, I think I like her, and I'm trying to figure out how to tell her, and I don't know what she's gonna say. Take a minute, have a smoke, calm down. Yeah, yeah, thanks, I just need a minute. This'll do it. Kyle, what are you doing? Why is the men's room out of service? This is a gender-diversified co-ed bathroom. This is not a good idea. Why are you so backwards thinking, Jess? Yeah. This particular toilet is not legally equipped for co-ed occupancy, and I don't think we, as extra-legal restroom attendants, get to make that call. Is there a party out here? Yeah, grab a sandwich. Laura? James? Did, did you... That was you? I... You were talking about me? Uh, I think you're a babe. <laughs> I I really like you. Ugh. Thank God there's plenty of places to barf in here. What a sappy moment. Let's get out of this bathroom. Thanks for the smoke. I can't believe it. Yeah, I know. We should have got a bigger tip. No, I can't believe that girl didn't wash her hands. The Trump Diaries. Trump gives Congress a non-starter of a deal on immigration. FBI Deputy Director Andrew McCabe steps aside in what is being called a Monday massacre. The GOP releases a highly misleading memo on the Russian investigation. The State of the Union is strange. And Melania returns. These are the Trump Diaries. Day 371, January 25th. 
Trump has given Democrats a take-it-or-leave-it offer on immigration. The deal, which would give citizenship to 1.8 million people who qualified for the DREAM Act, would also include massive funding for a border wall, much harsher immigration enforcement, and an end to decades of family-based immigration policies. Democrats rejected the deal out of hand, as have some Republicans. The Senate is now working on a smaller but partisan compromise. And Trump said he is willing to be questioned under oath by Robert Mueller. He also told stunned reporters yesterday he's being accused of obstruction of justice because he, quote, fought back against the Russia probe. Trump said, quote, I would love to do it and I would like to do it as soon as possible. I would do it under oath, absolutely. Trump's lawyer, Ty Cobb, walked that comment back later saying Trump would be represented by counsel. And the Post reports that Trump asked the acting director of the FBI how he voted in the 2016 election. Anna McCabe said he didn't vote. Trump also reportedly vented anger at McCabe over the several hundred thousand dollars in donations that his wife, a Democrat, received for her failed 2015 Virginia Senate bid from a political action committee controlled by a close friend of Hillary Clinton. And USA Today reports the Justice Department has threatened 23 so-called sanctuary cities with subpoenas if they fail to provide documents showing compliance with immigration policies. In response, a group of mayors canceled their meeting with Trump. And a Dutch newspaper is reporting that Dutch intelligence spied on the Russian group Cozy Bear, believed to be behind the hack of the Democratic Party ahead of the U.S. elections in 2016. Cozy Bear is believed to be linked to the Russian government. Day 372, January 26th. An explosive report in the New York Times said that Trump tried to fire Russian investigating leader Robert Mueller this past June, but was stopped when his lead counsel told him he would quit if Trump carried through. Trump denied the report today in Davos as fake news, but other outlets have corroborated that report. Mueller is aware of the incident. Trump is being investigated for, among other things, possible obstruction of justice. Sarah Huckabee Sanders had told the press corps yesterday that reporters were part of the reason why Trump did not fire Mueller. I think we all know what everybody in this room would do if the president did that, and I don't think that is helpful to the process. The Verge is reporting that Trump will withdraw from the International Space Station program by 2025. The ISS costs NASA between $3 and $4 billion each year. The USA has invested $87 billion in the space station since its inception. And Trump gave a reassuring speech at Davos telling the world's financial leaders that his America First agenda was not a rejection of international cooperation. His speech also added a pitch for renewed investment in the USA. Trump said, quote, I believe in America, and as President of the United States, I will always put America first, just like the leaders of other countries should put their country first. But America first does not mean America alone. When the U.S. grows, so does the world. Trump was also booed at Davos for criticizing the media as, quote, nasty and fake. And Hurricane Maria has left Puerto Rico in grave financial trouble, according to the island's governors. The deeply indebted nation will not be able to pay down any portion of their more than $70 billion debt over the next five years. Puerto Rico is expected to lose 8% of its population in a post-hurricane exodus to the mainland. Some 50% of the island remains without power in the wake of that hurricane. Day 373, January 27th. NBC reported that Trump demanded to know why James Comey was allowed to fly in an FBI plane after he had been fired. Deputy Director Andrew McCabe had not been asked to authorize the flight, but he reportedly told Trump he would have approved it anyway. Trump then reports that Trump called McCabe on that call and his wife losers. And Think Progress reports that EPA head Scott Pruitt has been personally involved in erasing climate data from the EPA website. Pruitt also allegedly asked staff to alter search results on the site. And Trump said in an interview with ITV UK that he was, quote, not a feminist, a position that surprises no one. No, I would not say that I'm a feminist. I mean, I think that would be maybe going too far. I am for women. I am for men. I am for everyone. 
Trump also added in the interview that he tweets from bed because he is, quote, very busy and that he eats very well from some of the finest chefs in the world. Day 374, January 28th. Stephen Wynn resigned from his position as finance chairman for the Republican National Committee after being accused of sexual misconduct in a story in the Wall Street Journal. Wynn has denied the allegations, calling them preposterous, but the fallout from that story was swift, with some organizations immediately returning money raised by the casino magnate. Day 375, January 29th. Republicans in the House Intelligence Committee disregarding Justice Department warnings that their actions would be, quote, extraordinarily reckless, voted to release a secret memo today. The memo, a hot talking point in far-right media and which has been called inaccurate and misleading, is said to accuse the Justice Department and the FBI of abusing authority and requesting surveillance on ex-Trump aide Carter Page. The committee has never before declassified such a document. The Post reports that Trump erupted in anger on Air Force One when a top Justice Department official advised against releasing that memo. Trump apparently told Jeff Sessions to excel at their jobs or go down as the worst in history. And in a widely expected move, the FBI's deputy director, Andrew McCabe, has stepped down. McCabe had been harshly criticized by Trump and had previously said he would retire in March when his pension became fully vested. He will instead go on leave now and retire in March. The New York Times is reporting that McCabe resigned under pressure from FBI head Christopher Wray. And the Trump administration is reportedly planning to nationalize a new 5G wireless network, citing China and security needs. Major players, including the FCC, have pushed back forcefully against the idea. FCC Chair Ajit Pai said the move could hurt the private sector and the economy. The 5G standard is closely linked to the so-called Internet of Things, which hackers have already exploited. And the Senate today rejected a bill to ban most abortions after 20 weeks of pregnancy. The vote was 51 to 46, well short of the 60-vote threshold required for the Senate to break a Democratic filibuster. The outcome was not a surprise, as the vote was mainly an effort by the Republicans to force Democrats in vulnerable states to take a position on the hot-button issue. And the Pentagon said it will adjust guidelines for using fitness tractors after a popular app revealed the locations and contours of military installations abroad. A global heat map posted online by Strava revealed the outlines of U.S. military bases in some of the most dangerous places on Earth, along with routes taken by supply convoys and patrols. And the deadline to implement sanctions on Russia's sanctions is today. Trump reluctantly signed a bill to punish Russia for meddling in the 2016 elections in the law, but as yet, his Treasury Department has done little about it. Day 376, January 30th. The State of the Union Address is tonight. Trump is expected to deliver a speech written by far-right immigration hardliner Stephen Miller. First Lady Melania, who has been absent since her reports of an affair between her husband and a porn star blindsided her, is expected to attend. And Trump released a list of prominent Russian business and political figures implementing a law at the deadline to punish Russia for meddling in the 2016 election. That report listed every senior member of the political administration at the Kremlin and every Russian oligarch with a net worth of $1 billion or more. Trump, however, said the report was not a sanctions list. The Kremlin immediately criticized the report, claiming the USA was meddling in their elections. And Sarah Huckabee Sanders claimed in a White House press conference that poll after poll shows that nobody cares about the Russian investigation. She did not cite a particular poll, perhaps because, in fact, Americans who have been polled on the question overwhelmingly do care about the result of the investigation. 
Day 377, January 31st. Trump gave his first State of the Union address last night, largely sticking to a script and avoiding any major new policy measures. He called upon Congress to pass a comprehensive immigration reform bill without offering specifics and asked for a $1.5 trillion infrastructure bill. Response to that address was muted with Megyn Kelly wondering why we would care and Democrats hissing at Trump during parts of his speech. One memorable reaction came from Sean Hannity, who asked his guest why Democrats, quote, just sat there instead of getting up and cheering. That guest was Donald Trump Jr. Nancy Pelosi reportedly told her caucus to behave during the speech. Politico quoted her saying, quote, let the attention be on his slobbering self. And the FBI is investigating a second Trump-Russia dossier. The second memo, prepared by journalist Cody Shearer, apparently independently corroborates many of the statements made in the more famous Steele dossier. Both documents allege Trump was compromised during a 2013 trip to Russia and that videotapes of him exist. The new document also contains the allegation that there are videotapes of sex workers urinating on Trump. And Paul Ryan called for a cleansing of the FBI. Ryan was attempting to defend Devin Nunes' release of a memo that attempts to shift attention from the Russia probe to the FBI's behavior. Let it all out. Get it all out there, Ryan said. Cleanse the organization. Ryan, however, defended Mueller, saying he was beyond reproach. In related news, NBC is reporting that Trump is considering ordering Jeff Sessions to prosecute Mueller. On what grounds is unclear. A Trump advisor told NBC, quote, here's how it would work. We're sorry, Mr. Mueller. You won't be able to run the federal grand jury today because he has to go testify to another federal grand jury. And Trump declined to place new sanctions on Russia in defiance of a congressional order he signed. Instead, the White House published a list that was cribbed entirely from a Forbes 200 Richest Businessmen in Russia 2017 story. Senator Claire McCakeskill called Trump's failure to act a constitutional crisis. Cubs co-owner Todd Ricketts will become the new RNC finance chair. Ricketts replaces Steve Wynn, who was forced to step down in the wake of sexual harassment allegations. Ricketts had been tapped by Trump to be the Commerce Secretary, but declined due to the difficulty of unwinding his finances. And FEMA is today ending food and water aid to Puerto Rico. 25% of that country remains without water, and a third remain without power. And a Bloomberg analysis of the upcoming 2018 election suggests that Democrats are poised to end one-party rule in Washington. The average loss for a party in control in midterm elections in the House is 26 seats. Democrats need to win just 24 to take control. Democrats need to flip just two seats in the Senate. And the doomsday clock has moved forward 30 seconds as the bulletin of the atomic scientists called the current state of geopolitical affairs grim. It is now two minutes to midnight. These are the Trump Diaries. Radio Free Bridgeport spoke to Scott Kennedy, head of ILElectionData.com. Kennedy talked about the upcoming midterm elections, handicapped some of the frontrunners, and discussed the emergence of challenges from the left for Democrats in this state. Radio Free with John Daly airs every Tuesday drive time at 4 p.m. We have Scott Kennedy of IllinoisElectionData.com. Welcome, Scott. Thank you for having me. Yeah, thank you for being here. Thanks, Scott. Thanks. So you have an incredibly useful tool for the, these races, and, and um, you, you've put together a repository of uh, election data, f- campaign filings, and, and all the, the finances, and all, all the good stuff that you want to know, including maps and all kind of uh, useful analysis. Tell us a little bit about how you uh, got this website started. Well, you know, uh, years ago, I worked on campaigns, mostly statewide campaigns, a couple of governor's races, a couple of Senate races. And after doing that for a few times, I finally just got completely burnt out and was I promised myself I was going to go do anything else. And I did. I went and did literally anything else. But in the meantime, I had all these files left over from my campaign days, vote totals, maps of vote totals, campaign budgets, finance information. And my friends that were still in politics would ask me, 
me, hey, will you zip up all your files and send them to me? And so finally, I just got the idea, well, I don't need to keep them proprietary anymore. I don't need to keep them private. Why don't I teach myself a lot of coding and just put them on the web and, and share them with people? And um, hopefully, you know, the people that I know that work campaigns that are overweight camp overworked campaign staffers uh, could find cut a little bit of corners find that I've already done this work and then and, and take it from there. Um, and that was in 2011 or 2012. Uh, and so then it's just been a hobby and it's sort of grown um, as technology has improved, as more data become uh, available. Um, we've just found the opportunity to add new things, uh, and new features, new data sets that I think people who work in elections would find useful. Uh, and then a few years ago, I started a Twitter feed. And whenever something interesting came along, I would put it on Twitter. Uh, and it got a decent following. A lot of reporters follow me because they'll see some of the the more recent developments, and then that helps them um, on some of the stories that they're working on. Uh, so it's just sort of grown organically out of a hobby just because I was burnt out of politics. What did anything else look like? Uh, so I went uh, with a friend of mine, and we started an LED energy-efficient lighting company. And we're both out of that business now, but we did it for a few years. And it was just um, about some other new challenge. We had had that same challenge over and over, and it, I just needed something new. You needed to cancel the uh, the vote builder uh, accounts. <laughs> That's right. Turn those over to somebody else. Let them have those headaches for a while. I needed a break. What What about Chicago politics in particular burned you out? We keep hearing that this is not a beanbag around here, but I'd be curious as a as a outsider, honestly, yeah. to hear what what specifically it is. Because you know we talk about burnout in other jobs. I don't really think people think about politics as being burnout because people don't necessarily think about politicians as as people doing jobs. Or people that work in, in politics, sure. campaign workers and stuff. They think this is all some kind of crazy thing that they only know from the West Wing. Yeah. Well, you know, there's there's two different types of political jobs. One is on the campaign side where you're working on the, the campaign staff for an election. And the other is if that person gets elected and you will go and work in their office. And they can both burn you out in different ways. Um, but one of the most, com most common ways is it has a certain relentlessness to it. You know, when anything happens in the world... Um, a lot of times that'll affect what you're doing in your office or in your campaign. Campaigns tend to be seven-day-a-week jobs, and government jobs can be, depending on the nature of that job. Um, and they tend to monopolize your life. And so your personal relationships get affected. Your um, uh, romantic life gets very much affected. And you have a way of, you know, whoever you're working for, their problems are your number one priority, and your problems take a back seat to that. And after a while, you know, I had done it for about 10 years uh, consecutively. And after a while, I just needed a little bit of space. I needed a little bit of a break. And I was out of politics for, I know I've been out for about seven or eight years, and I'm probably going to wind up getting back in in some capacity here in the next little bit. But I was probably out for five years and had no interest in getting back in. Happy to meet friends in a bar and, and talk politics the way anybody else would. Happy to connect with people and, and shoot the breeze. But I didn't have that burning desire to go back. And it's only recently that I have. And so that's how burnt out I was and how long it, it took me to get back to normal. Hmm, sounds like working at Fox Sports. <laughs> <laughs> 
Uh, no, I mean, that's, that's pretty interesting because, I, you know, the fact that I don't think people realize that in politics, you, you said something very interesting there, that, that the politicians' problems are your number one problem. And I don't think people really realize how much retail politicians do, especially, for example, at the aldermanic level. Mm -hmm. To me, that sounds like a horrible job. People just complain to you all the time about everything that's wrong with, right. you know, my garbage has been picked up. My neighbor's a slob. There are rats over here. Why aren't we having blimp-based internet? You know, all, all this kind of crazy stuff. I don't think people really realize that, but also I don't think there there is still this very old school strain of people that view, for example, somebody going to the House of Representatives or a senator or or any kind of congressman, that is that is somebody you should, are able to call upon. Right. That's supposed to be not only a representative for you, but it's a it's a retail asset Correct. in a weird way. And I'm assuming that that filters down a lot to the staffers. Am I am I wrong about that? Yeah, I, there's obviously a lot of follow through that's necessary, and so you know that's a constituent service element, right? So if if you're a staffer for an alderman, you're going to community meetings, uh, and the people that are at the meetings are Generally, they're not there to say, hey, great job. They're there because, oh, there's this issue that we need to talk about. It's usually a pretty complicated issue, which is why people need to talk about it. And there's some complicated answer that you need to help them think through and then follow up on. So you're generally going from difficult situation to difficult situation um, and then trying to figure out how to best follow through with them on that. You know, the one thing I do like about it, though, is when I was um, selling light bulbs, sales, you don't have to necessarily be the smartest person in the room. You have to have a lot of drive and you have to be willing to um, deal with some setbacks because you're going to hear no more often than say yes. But it's just about a, a sort of a, a work ethic. Um, in politics, there's a work ethic, but there's also a, a thinking component as well. If you're, um, if you're working for somebody who has a, a number one legislative priority, so say they're an alderman at city council, they're a state representative in Springfield or a congressman in D.C., and they want to pass their number one uh, issue priority, you've got to figure out who can we get to get on to be on our side? What sort? What types of information should we present to them? Right? There's this incredible um, strategy to it, um, and the, it really challenges your your intellect. Um, and so, it, in that sense, it can also be very rewarding. And so that's why you see people that are um, are very interested in in working in that field and staying in that field. Scott, on on the site, you uh, you're constantly updating an RSS feed who is filing um, whether it's a1s d1s these are these are financial filings for candidates yeah um, and and as we said at the beginning of the show everyone has kind of said that this is the the election cycle to watch right that right. this is where who knows we, we might see a half a billion dollars or you know all the numbers have been thrown out there have you seen uh, this this exponential um, uh, even whether it's frequency or, or, or volume of individual um, donations happen uh, this cycle? Yeah, we've definitely seen some things that are rather remarkable. Um, prior to the cycle even beginning, and this has to do with a little bit of the technical uh, quirks in campaign finance law, and I'm not going to bore you with that, but right, heading right into this cycle, the governor's up for re-election. He put $50 million of his own money into his campaign fund in one lump sum. That's unprecedented. Um, not long after that, it was matched by, uh, well, not matched, but one of his very wealthy uh, f allies added another $20 million. So six, nine months ago, the governor had $70 million in his, count, his account for his reelection, and that's unprecedented. On the Democratic side, we have J.B. Pritzker, who's, worth, who's a literal billionaire um, in the race and who's pledged to spend, not just spend his own money, but only his own money. So he's not taking any money from anybody else. Um, and he's already put in $42 million, and the primary is still two months away. 
previously, the last guy to, to put in that much money in a Democratic primary was in 2004. Blair Hall uh, put in $29 million of his own money, and, and he lost. He lost to Barack Obama. So having the most money it doesn't always mean you win. But right now we're seeing these just incredible large sums, and it's expected that um, – for example, on the Democratic side, if J.B. Pritzker wins the Democratic nomination for governor and is the Democratic candidate going forward, the people that typically give money on the Democratic side to the gubernatorial candidate, they don't have to give money to J.B. Pritzker. So they can start spending that money on congressional races, on state Senate races, on state House races. And so the expectation is if he ends up becoming the nominee, um, you'll just see a, a lot of money flowing uh, on the Democratic side to these legislative races that we don't normally see. In the flip side, on the Republican side, two years ago, Governor Rauner decided um, he wasn't up. He, he was the middle of his term. He has a lot of money on his own. And so he started putting money on the Republican side in these legislative races. So two years ago, we saw unprecedented money in legislative races. And this time around, we could see the same things, assuming the governor um, wins his primary. So we could see really expensive governor's race. We could potentially see a really expensive uh, attorney general's race um, because Governor Rauner has made it clear that that's a priority for him. Um, and then because a lot of the money that would normally go to the governor's races won't be going there, we could potentially see really expensive legislative races. We haven't seen as much of it in the primary so far, especially on the legislative side, um, but I would anticipate a pretty active summer. Kent, is Rauner vulnerable at all in his primary? It doesn't seem like it. It's hard to say. I'm, I'm not the greatest at handicapping Republican primaries. His opponent has a very low name ID right now. Her name is uh, Jeannie Ives. She's a state representative from DuPage County. Um, yesterday, she and the governor debated at the Chicago Tribune, and she had a good day. Um, the governor was playing a lot of defense. She was playing a lot of offense. Um, and it was a bit of an unexpected dynamic. The governor hasn't played a lot of defense so far in his term. So it was unusual. The Tribune, which is, the Tribune editorial page, which is normally supported the governor um, on most issues, uh, wrote an uh, editorial afterwards saying that um, they're not ready to make an endorsement and they want to see how this goes, but that Representative Ives showed herself to be a very capable challenger. Um, so it, it changed the dynamic a little bit. She's very much underfunded. Now, yesterday she got a half a million dollars from a typical Republican donor, somebody who's um, given several million in the past, including given several million to Governor Rauner, um, so that now she has about a million dollars in her account. But she probably needs five to seven million dollars to make a genuine challenge to the governor. And then I, I don't know. I don't know what her ceiling is. I don't know what his floor is. Right. But it, it would make things very interesting. So she had a momentum generating day yesterday. Um, but she needs to turn that into something um, that's a little bit more than what she has now so she can communicate throughout the state. Now just for dummies like me, why would somebody that's given to Rauner also give to her? Is it to make it? A, is it to give Rauner a little toughening up before a general election? Is that some of the thinking? Or? There, there was a bit of a falling out among a group of people that had been aligned on the Republican side as recently as two years ago. Um, you may remember that over the summer, the governor fired his staff that he'd had for a couple of years, That's and right. he brought in a bunch of staffers from uh, a conservative think tank, a libertarian think tank, but very conservative policies. And after a couple of months, that didn't go well, and most of them were let go. And throughout that 
uh, tumultuous time, there was a, a bit of a fraying among some people that had been previously allied. Um, and so it, I think it would be a slight exaggeration to say there's a civil war going on in the Illinois Republican Party right now, but it's been a bit fractured where before they were allied as recently as 2016. And that's why you're seeing some of this. Radio Free also welcomed Marin Celeste into the studio for a live performance. This song is off her forthcoming release, I Saw the Sun on Candor Arts.
Lumpen Week in Review is produced by the staff and volunteers of WLPN LP Chicago, the community radio of the future. Lumpen Week in Review is overseen by Logan Bay, produced and engineered by Jamie Trecker. The Lumpen theme, background, and interstitial music is by Mike Perkins. Lumpen Radio Sting by Dan Jugal. Voiceovers by Ed Marzuski, Jamie Trecker, and Shanna Van Volt. For more information on Lumpen Radio, visit lumpenradio.com. Lumpen Radio broadcasts on 105.5 FM in the Chicago area and worldwide via lumpenradio.com. Yeah.